Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Near the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. O Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury blessings and the giver of life, come dwell in us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one. For the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. It's good to be back with you. And uh, so uh, let's dive back in. And if you have one of those outlines, let's pick up on, um, on page uh, 17. So grab my Bible here, and we'll start off with a little bit of reading from Ephesians. So uh, Ephesians chapter 4 is really a beginning, a turning point in the book. We're moving now to really the, um, the, procl uh, the proclamation, from proclamation to exhortation, which is to say the moral teachings that Paul has. And let's just read a few verses here in chapter 4 to get us started. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. All right, um, so let's take a look at these first couple verses here. As I said, um, in the chapter we were looking at last time, chapter 3, uh, Paul was really more concerned with doctrinal teaching. We saw that a lot of that doctrine in Ephesians is embedded in the prayers of Ephesians. And there's more prayer to come. Um, don't you worry about that. But in this next section of the letter, he really wants to get more into moral exhortation. He urges the Ephesians in this chapter to be imitators of God in all facets of Christian living. Be imitators of God. He says in verse 1, uh, walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. Notice how he already talks in the past tense. I, I mentioned um, also last time that part of Paul's strategy is to try to show the Ephesians what they already possess. You know, he's saying this to them in many different ways. It's not as though um, you don't possess these things already. All the gifts um, that the Spirit is pouring out you already have them as the church collectively. So now you need to step in that to them and you put them on. All right. Um, and then a very key uh, part of the letter here in verse 4. Let's look at it again. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. 
Now that little formula is very, very important for understanding Paul's whole approach to Christianity, right? All that we've been saying throughout this whole series is that Paul's got his hands full. He does because this church is made up of Jews and Gentiles. They have very different worldviews, and he's trying to bring them together into a unified Christian body. And so throughout the letter, this is one of the reasons you keep seeing this emphasis on the oneness, on the unity. And here he gets right to the point. One Lord, one faith, and one baptism. And let's get a little bit of clarity um, on these from some of the saints and, and from others here. On page 17, St. Jerome has a, a nice phrase on uh, Paul's uh, text, called to one hope. Middle of 17, he says, at the end and consummation of all things, everything is to be restored to its original condition when we are all made one body and formed anew into a perfect man. Now, Paul says something similar uh, as what he says here in Ephesians elsewhere when he says, uh, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Um, this idea of a new creation not only fascinated um, apostles like St. Paul, but as we can see, St. Jerome and also St. Irenaeus and other early church figures who came up with a very interesting term that I want to teach you tonight. It's a bit of, bit of a tongue twister, so I'll say it first, and then I want you to say it with me, and I'll explain what it means. It's really, really neat. The term is anakephaliosis. That's an easy one, right? Let's just take it in parts. Ana, like the, like the name Ana. Say Ana. Kef. Aliosis. Let's try it one more time. Anakephaliosis. Here it is in English. Recapitulation. Much easier, right? Listen to what the Catechism says on uh, anakephaliosis in the Greek or recapitulation. Uh, if you have a Catechism, open up with me to paragraph 517. If not, I'll read it for you. Um, this is what it says. Paragraph 518. Christ's whole life is a mystery of recapitulation. Recapitulation, in Greek, anakephaliosis. All Christ did and said and suffered had for its aim restoring fallen man to his original vocation. When Christ became incarnate and was made man, he recapitulated in himself the long history of mankind and procured for us, I like this phrase, a shortcut to salvation. A shortcut to salvation. So that what we had lost in Adam that is being made in the image and likeness of God, we might recover in Christ Jesus. For this reason, Christ experienced all the stages of life, thereby giving communion with God to all men. Okay, so what St. Jerome is getting at is the same thing the Catechism is getting at, is the same thing that St. Paul is getting at. So let's try to understand for a moment this Catholic theological teaching of recapitulation. We know that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he made man in his image and likeness, right? We also know that in Genesis, after the fall of man, after the fall of Adam and Eve, they lost their immortal life, right? And the story then of the Bible is of God's redemption of humanity, recovering what was lost. Um, one of the early church fathers says that after the fall of man, humanity retained the image of God, but lost the likeness of God. 
I remember the first time I heard that I was very struck because I always thought that phrase image and likeness in Genesis really meant the same thing. But the church fathers, like St. Augustine, taught us that there are actually two different, uh, have two different meanings. When the church fathers say that after the fall of man, humanity law, uh, retained the image, what they mean to say is that original sin does not in any way diminish our dignity made in the image of God himself. We have inherent dignity. Every human person who's ever lived has had inherent dignity. And that teaching is the bedrock foundation of our Catholic moral teaching, right? The teaching, for example, about uh, contraception or abortion or all the all, you know, bioethical questions in some way are rooted in that teaching in Genesis that we are all made in the image of God. Now, likeness is something very similar, but it's also different. Likeness has to do with our response to God. And that is obviously something that can um, rise and fall depending upon our obedience or disobedience to God, our faithfulness or unfaithfulness. So again, the church fathers taught us that regardless of what we do in life, every person, no matter how good or how bad, from Mother Teresa to go right down the line to the worst person in humanity you can think of, whoever that is, right? All of them and all of us are created in the image of God. What Paul wants to do is help us to, in Christ, recover the likeness of God, which is to say, to have the attributes of God that he shares with us, his loving kindness, his patience, his mercy, his grace, his peace, and so on. And how he does that is through the cross. How he does that is through the cross. We're born into new life through the cross, through baptism, and we begin walking with God and walking closer to God and coming closer into the, the likeness of God himself. So for St. Irenaeus, when he looks at the, the mystery of Scripture and he sees Jesus Christ on the cross and resurrected, he understood very well what St. Paul was getting at. St. Jerome is saying a very similar thing, and that is to say that Jesus Christ in himself recovers, transforms, restores, renews. These are all synonyms for recapitulates, right? And that's what, 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 what Paul is getting at here. Recapitulation is one of my favorite mysteries. And um, in my series, The God Who Speaks, I, I gave some examples of how in the Gospels this actually works. So if you're interested, I go through a bunch of examples on there. Um, one example I could give you right now is from uh, the wedding feast at Cana. We all know that in John's Gospel, Jesus' first miracle was transforming the water into wine. Well, how, does, how is recapitulation work in that scene? Well, I would suggest it's actually very interesting because when Jesus performs his first miracle, all you have to do is go back to the Old Testament and see that Moses had a first miracle as well. Moses did miracles. They're called signs and wonders in the book of Exodus, but they're essentially miracles. What was Moses' first miracle? Anybody remember? Turning the water of the Nile into blood as a sign to Pharaoh. Do you see the connection? So Jesus' first sign, turning water into wine, which is an image of his blood. Moses' first sign, turning water into wine. There are a lot of things like this in Scripture where there's a correlation between the Old and New Testament. And what St. Jerome is saying, what Paul is getting at, what St. Irenaeus was getting at with his fancy anacaphaleosis idea that the catechism is reminding us of, is that Christ restores all things, not just the universe, but all of us. And so what I like to say to my daughter is, Isabel, every time you go to confession, in some sense, when you come out of there, Christ has recapitulated you back into the image of 
the daughter of God that he intends you to be. Every time I go to confession, it's the same thing. Every time we cooperate with grace, we are, in a sense, being recapitulated, brought back into that image of what was lost in the garden. And I think this is what Paul is getting at in this passage here. He also talks about, um, so he says, one, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Lord. In the early church, the affirmation, Jesus is Lord, was a way of acknowledging Jesus as supreme ruler. Taught you that in this first night, right? To say Jesus is Lord is to say Caesar is not. And that's not just something for the ancient world. You may kind of extrapolate forward that teaching to our own day and think about the challenges uh, that brings to each of us in terms of making decisions on a daily basis in our own lives. One faith. Look at what Irenaeus says, bottom of 17. Indeed, the church, though scattered throughout the whole world, even to the ends of the earth, having received the faith from the apostles and their disciples, guards this preaching and faith with care, as it ought, um, as dwelling in but a single house, and similarly believes as if having one soul and a single heart, preaches and teaches and hands on this faith with a unanimous voice, as if possessing only one mouth. And sometimes when I talk to people about the one Catholic faith, I'll get questions like, well, does that mean that everyone's gonna sort of has to be look alike or do the same things? Not at all. Um, Paul, when you read his letters, preaches a great diversity in Christ. Diversity is not the problem. Division is the problem. Diversity is something that is very spirit-filled and good. Uh, division is diabolical, and Paul's going to talk about that as well. So one Lord, one faith, and then page 18, one baptism. This is what we confess every time we say the Apostles' Creed, right? And listen to what the Catechism says on our one baptism. Our Lord tied the forgiveness of sins to faith and baptism. Faith and baptism. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation. He who believes and is baptized is saved. Jesus from Mark chapter 16. Catechism goes on to say, Baptism is the first and chief sacrament of forgiveness of sins because it unites us with Christ who died for our sins and rose for our justification so that we too might walk in newness of life. And I just want to clarify this. I don't want to linger too long, but I want to clarify if there's any confusion here or if there's anyone tonight who's here who's not a Catholic. You know that we baptize children, infants, in the Catholic Church. And some would say, well, how is that possible that God could forgive sins when, first of all, a little child doesn't even you know, have any sins that they could have committed? And secondly, they can't make a decision for themselves. Well, first of all, the teaching is that we're all born into original sin. So yes, that child may not have committed actual sin, but every single one of us, no fault of our own, are born into the race of Adam. So indeed, we are all sinful in that sense. Um, and it doesn't take very long after that for the actual sin to begin either, right? I know with a couple of kids myself. Um, but all kidding aside, then there's this whole business of, well, why do we baptize infants when, um, you know, for the forgiveness of sins? How is it possible that a parent's faith is covering for, for the children. What Jesus says in the Gospels, right? Let the little children come on to me. How many times does he say your faith must be like that of a little child? Um, but as we know, when an infant child is baptized, it's the grace of the sacrament that infuses that child with new life. It's not, a, it's not, it's not magic, but there is a miracle taking place. That does not um, 
mean, though, that that child is, has a ticket to heaven. Some people believe this about the Catholic Church. Oh, well, you're baptized, and then you just, you know, you go to heaven. Well, no, it's not quite that simple. We need to work out our faith with fear and trembling. And this is why as we grow, and the, that child grows to come into a full knowledge of Christ, they need to make a full profession of faith. We do this in all kinds of ways, but sacramentally, I'm thinking, of course, of confirmation. And even before that, we have First Confession and First Communion. So these are various points in a person's life, even at a young age, where they're acknowledging the grace of Jesus Christ with their mouth, with their mind, and with their heart. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now let's jump down to verse 14 and 15, where he says something really interesting. Do not be carried away by every wind of doctrine. What's Paul talking about here? Well, apparently there were various heresies that the Ephesian church was falling into, even though, I, as I told you, they were um, generally in good shape compared to some of his other churches that he was dealing with. It doesn't mean that they didn't have their doctrinal problems. And he wants to let them know that they need to be, ha have the mind of Christ and they're going to get that through him, right? As an apostle, they can trust his teaching. Listen to, uh, uh, to this quote here. From this entire passage is furnished the clearest proof of the existence of external authority in the church, the office of the apostles. Sometimes people will ask me, uh, Steve, does it really matter who wrote the Gospels? You know, I mean, do we really know who wrote them? It doesn't matter whether it was Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or, or they came from somewhere else. And I say, absolutely it matters. First of all, because let's get the story straight. The, the Gospels were written by the apostles, right? And uh, we have all the proof in the world for this. Uh, all we need to do is look into the early church, and you can see the testimony of the early church that unanimously supports that the Gospels were written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, um, why this is very important is because I think today, in many ways, people look at the Gospels, and they get kind of confused because there's all sorts of other um, apocryphal Gospels that are out there. They say, well, we've got the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but we've also got these other ones like the Gospel of Thomas and uh, the Gospel of Philip and so on. A key difference between them is that only the canonical Gospels, that is only Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, go back to Jesus' own followers. Very, very important. Matthew and John were in the company of the Twelve, and Mark um, and Luke were in the company of apostles. Mark, by tradition, was a companion of Peter himself, and Luke, of course, was the traveling physician and companion of the Apostle Paul, so they're called apostolic men. But let's just kind of get rid of this, these myths and these ideas that the Gospels kind of just were written by anonymous communities or from a later period of, of time. All the Gospels were composed at the very latest within um, a generation of Jesus' crucifixion at the outset by, you know, 80 to 100 A.D., some people still are under the impression the Gospels were written in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th century. That's absolutely hogwash. It's not true. Um, now, Paul knows that if they stick with his apostolic teaching, they will have um, a healthy church, at least doctrinally, right, if they embrace it. But uh, today, we've got a lot of people that are more interested in reading some of these apocryphal Gospels than even the four Gospels. And I want to say, well, you know, no, you know, it's not wrong to read the Gospel of Thomas, but have you ever read John? No. Why don't you start with one of the apostolic teachings before you get on to these uh, apocryphal ones, which are very fanciful and very strange in many ways. 
and are not to be trusted in the ways that we trust the Gospels. It's not to say you can't learn from them, but I would say put that on your secondary or tertiary reading list. Get on with the Gospels. Now, uh, Peter Williamson has a nice quote here about uh, being carried away by every wind of doctrine. Bottom of 18, top of page 19, I want to quote him here. He says, new believers, and sometimes older ones too, should know better, quickly embrace the latest fashions of thought and action, whether secular or religious, without measuring them against Scripture and the faith of the church. Very, very wise advice, right? So what Paul is saying to his church is still very relevant today. We need to be grounded in apostolic truth. I like what Williamson says, stability. Stability in the truth is a mark of maturity. Stability in the truth. How stable are you in the truth? I bet you're more than ever in coming to this ICC, right? But we still know lots of people we need to pray for that in many ways are carried away this way and that by all sorts, by all sorts of teaching. We need to pray for them. Chapter 4, verse uh, 26, very famous uh, text here. Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, I want to clarify a couple of things about this well-known passage. To be clear, it is a mistake to conclude that Paul is conceding to anger in any expression as long as it doesn't get out of hand. Just kind of keep it under control. This is not what Paul is saying. Paul is not granting permission to be angry. Um, although verse 26 recognizes that anger will come, verse 27 indicates just how dangerous it is. Look at verse 27. Give no opportunity to the devil. Does this sound like someone who's saying, well, be angry if you've got to be angry? So Paul's not giving a license to, to, to anger. He knows that it's dangerous. He knows that it's also divisive. Verse 31, it repudiates all anger. Listen to what he says. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from before you, along with all malice, all bad things. Be kind to one another, he says. So Paul is not giving a license to anger. He's simply acknowledging the reality that sometimes, indeed, we are going to get angry. The focus of what his teaching is here in Ephesians is on not sinning, not on indulging in anger or measuring how angry we can get and still be a good Catholic, right? That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about not sinning and avoiding anger as much as possible. And, of course, his advice is very sage when it comes to all relationships, but particularly engaged couples and married couples. You know, I, I go out and give talks all the time, and, you know, I remind them that they're going to have conflict in marriage, but the goal is try to, to work through that conflict in a healthy way. One thing I tell married couples when I talk to them is, you know, solve your solvable problems. Solve your solvable problems. Don't get hung up in trying to solve every mystery of life that, that is going to happen. You can't solve all of them. Example, my wife likes the room insanely hot at night. I like the room comfortably cool. Now, she would say I like the room like a refrigerator, right? So we're never going to meet. And I always tell couples when I go and talk to them, look, you know, for us, there's no magic temperature. So what do we do? Well, sometimes one of us has a blanket on. One, sometimes one of us opens a window, closes the window. You know, it's never going to get resolved. It's an unsolvable problem, at least for our marriage. Um, but, that is not, um, but that is not what unites us. What unites us is our love. A lot of couples today that are getting engaged, I go out and give these talks, and I can see that they're excited, but they're also nervous. And I think one of the reasons they're nervous is the divorce culture in our, in our world, in our society, 
has made many fearful and anxious about does can marriage really last? I mean, they found someone, they're excited, but then they also wonder, can this really last? We need to help them, we need to pray for them. And Paul has some very beautiful things to say in chapter 5, which we're going to look at in just a couple moments on marriage. Chapter 5, verse 1, Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. You know, Jesus said in John's gospel, love one another as I have loved you. And everyone, almost every Catholic knows that uh, text. But here's a challenge. The next time you think of the phrase, love one another as I have loved you, think not only about the first part of that phrase, but the last part. Love one another as I have loved you. In other words, love one another in the manner that I loved you. How did Christ love us? He gave his life for us. If you really think about what he's saying, is very, very challenging. Just like the Lord's Prayer is challenging when he says, you know, when we pray, uh, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those to the extent that we forgive those who trespass against us. This is one of those kind of double-edged swords, right? It's beautiful to pray. It's a great promise, but it's also a challenge. We're to love one another in the manner that Christ loved us. Paul is saying something very similar. Be imitators of God, right? Be imitators of God, walk in his love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Now he's going to talk about this self-giving later in chapter 5, again, as it relates to man and woman. So to conclude chapter 4, bottom of 20, it's striking how much of Paul's practical instruction about our conduct is based on what God has done for us, already done for us, in Christ, rather than on divine commands or ethical reasoning. In other words, I said that this section was really a lot of moral teaching, and it is, but did you notice he actually doesn't have like 700 moral teachings, here's all the things you need to do. It's again this idea of become what you already are. So doctrine and morality are closely related, right? When our doctrine is right, then our morality ought to follow. The two work hand in hand. How we are to live derives from the fact that through the faith and through baptism, we have acquired a new self that has been created to be like God. Do you believe that? Do you still believe that? With all the different problems and messes in life, do you still believe that? That you were already created as a new creation. It happened at your baptism. Do you believe that? And, and, and you know, if you haven't thought about that recently, next time you dip your hand in some holy water, you know, say a little prayer of thanks to God for your baptism. And if necessary, ask God to revive that newness in your faith and in your life. And he will. And he will. All right, chapter 5 and 6 to get into uh, the home stretch here. In the previous section, Paul was emphasizing being an imitator of God, living out our new identity in Christ. Now he sharply contrasts the light and grace of the Christian life with the darkness and evil of pagan society. In many ways, it's only come in around the edges until now, but now it's going to come in in a big way. He also has a lot to say here about Christian family. Some call this Paul's household code because he has so much to say here about the relationships uh, between men and women, fathers and children, um, masters and servants, and so on. And we'll look at, at some of these. Okay, chapter 5, verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. 
as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Um, Peter Williamson has some very fine things to say in his commentary. I want to draw on just a, a few quotes that he has here, bottom of 21. He says, Sexual immorality defiles the worship of a Christian the worship a Christian offers to God in the temple of the Holy Spirit, to quote Paul from elsewhere. He adds that sexual joking is incompatible with the new self. In other words, you know, Paul is looking at the whole person here. He's not just saying, well, go to church and pray more. And he's also talking about like the way we actually even joke. He actually says that in this letter. There should not be coarse joking among you. And I think sometimes we probably... I, I think a lot of Catholics obviously try to watch what we say, maybe more than the person who's not invested in their faith. But the problem is that we've got so many things hitting us every day, you know, stand-up comedians on the TV, and the TV's getting more and more flagrant too, right? But we see all these, all these sources all around us, and it becomes very contagious. Sometimes we don't even know that we're talking this way. So think about this verse and think about what are some of the words that you need to eliminate from your own um, regular vocabulary. And they may not be the, the, you know, remember George Carlin's seven words you can't say on television, the really, really bad ones, right? But think of other words that sometimes creep into our vocabulary that just are not becoming of a Christian. Right? He goes on to say, uh, sexually suggestive speech and humor, common in TV, movies, many social settings, contributes to sexual misconduct because it coarsens us and gives us an immorality, uh, it gives immorality a false attraction. Another thing he's got to say here is about uh, drinking. Let's look at verse 18, another very practical thing. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. One of my favorite things to clear up here because this is the source of a lot of confusion in St. Paul. So let's be very clear. Two errors are often committed here. On one hand, I would suggest some Christians go beyond Paul as if he does not permit the taking of a drink at all. Yet this is neither the letter nor the spirit of the text. Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine. Now, that's not to say that Jesus was just trying to keep the party going. I said last time that there's a mystery here of the Messiah. Nevertheless, hello, you know, it is wine. Um, and I think that in our culture, uh, some, of, some of the problems that we have inherited today, believe it or not, I believe, are in some sense still remnants of the Puritanism that was part of our culture in um, a bygone era. And I'm not talking about virtue and modesty. Those are good things. But I'm talking about radical, excessive Puritanism, right? I went to a very good college, Wheaton College, uh, for my graduate degree. Um, and as an evangelical school, they had a no drinking policy. But they also had a no dancing policy because they were, you know, convinced that if kids would dance, it would kind of get out of hand. When I graduated from there in just about 2000, after almost 100 years, Wheaton College updated its, its, their dancing policy because the only dancing that was allowed in 2000 was square dancing. Now, if you do square dancing, that's fine, but square dancing, these kids are like, come on, square dancing. So, you know, where, where's, the, where's the limit? Where's the boundary here? Well, when they took that one off the table and said, no, you guys can dance, some kids were actually scandalized because, it, it, you know, that, there was a certain safety net there that said, okay, this is going to be a very pure environment. 
we're not going to do this, we're not going to do that. And maybe some could argue that those are good things to avoid, but others would, might say, well, you know, maybe that's going sort of off the deep end towards like the movie Footloose, right? Now, on the other hand, let's, let's be clear about the other extreme. On the other hand, some error in seeing Paul's teaching as a license to do things in moderation. This is mistaken as well because it reads into the text. Now, moderation in behavior is a very commendable thing, no question about it. But that's not the argument of what Paul is saying. It's not his argument. The text is contrasting two dispositions. First, the man who's intoxicated through excessive alcohol. And second, the man who is, properly speaking, imbibed and imbued with the Holy Spirit. He's making a contrast not between being drunk with wine or not being drunk with wine at all. He's talking about two different realities. One is a person who's intoxicated by wine. The other person is intoxicated in the Holy Spirit. Those are the two contrasts that he's making. And if you think th it through that way, what Paul's really getting at is something much mis more mysterious and deeper than just measuring our blood alcohol content. Right? He's not simply saying, be more moderate, and he's not, he's not um, saying that we can't have a drink at all. It's not about how much we drink here is really not th the point of Paul's teaching, but a contrast between being drinking the things of this world or drinking of the divine spirit of God. Now, let's move into this last section on um, family teaching here. My notes have a lot more to say than I'm going to get to tonight, so take a look at what he says about servants and masters, about children and their parents. But I want to get right to the core a controversy in this letter uh, regarding um, relationships, and that has to do with men and women. You probably know the passage I'm, I'm thinking of, but it's in chapter 5, verse 21, 33 where Paul says in this section, wives submit to your husbands. There it is. Now Pandora's box is open. What I want to tell you is, all kidding aside, is that this is one of the most mal maligned and misinterpreted passages in the whole of the New Testament. And if I do nothing else in this series, I want to try to help see our way through this, the right side of it. Because when you understand what Paul is really talking about, it's going to make your eyes pop out. Not in a way that is uh, negative, but, but positive and unbelievably hopeful. Okay, page 23. I want to offer three keys to getting our way through this text. The first key to unlocking the mystery is to read it all the way through, not to rip a phrase or a verse out of its context. I remember a number of years ago, my wife and I used to watch the show, uh, The West Wing. Remember that show with Martin Sheen as the president? And in one scene, one opening scene, him and his wife, you know, they pull up to the White House in the limo, they get out, and they're arguing with one another. They just come from church. And the, and the message was apparently, you know, wives submit to your husbands. And they were talking all about it and it made for a lot of funny humor. But, I, you know, I was pulling my hair out because, you know, they didn't read the actual passage. And I, I, I didn't get the impression from the show that they were interested in even talking about what the passage really said. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Most of the problems that people have with the Bible are very, very simple. We have to slow down. We've got to read Scripture in its context. Start with the sentence. Start with the paragraph. Read the larger section. Go back and read the whole letter. Think on it and pray on it. Even without you know, a master's degree or PhD, you'll do very well if you simply remember the rule of context. Unfortunately, people pull things out of context all the time. Lots of times over the last 100 years or so, people have taken this out of context to, um, to denigrate women, to talk about how the church keeps women down. There, see, it's in the Bible, so on and so forth. 
And again, this is just misaligning what Paul says. You just can't take one sentence out of context and say this is what the Bible says. You can't do it. Okay, the second key to understanding the text is to realize that Paul is not, there should be not in there, not strictly speaking, talking about marriage. Now, this seems nonsensical because he's going to talk all about husbands and wives, and if you read the letter, it's all about husbands and wives. So, Dr. Smith, what are you, what are you talking about? Well, we'll get, we'll get to it, but what he's really talking about is the relationship of the church to Christ himself. That's the, really the key that unlocks this whole passage, and we'll come back to that. The third key, as it relates to men and women, is bound up in a Greek phrase, hupotasso. Please say it with me. Hupotasso. And it means to submit. But Paul uses it in a reflexive way, the so-called middle voice. Without getting too technical, maybe anyone here has any English lit background, you'll understand the middle voice, reflexive. It simply means to submit oneself. And he makes this admonition to women, yes, but also to men. So what we're talking about is a mutual self-giving, a mutual uh, giving of the whole self one to the other. That's what Paul's talking about. So the first key, put scripture back in its context. Second key, Paul is really talking about Christ and the church. And the third key, when it comes to men and women, Paul is talking about and advocating a mutual submission of one to the other. Now, with those things said, let's look at a couple of key verses uh, verse 23 to 27 is often where the heart of these controversies lies, so I want to read those. Chapter 5, verse, let's start in 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of his church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to himself the church in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church." Because we are members of his body, therefore a man should leave his father and hold fast to his wife, here quoting Genesis 2, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Okay? So there's the passage. Now let's try to make our way through here a little bit. So indeed, wives are called to submit to their husbands, right? As unto the Lord. That's the key qualifying phrase, as unto the Lord. That last phrase is absolutely crucial. Wives are called to give themselves freely, and by the way, fully, to their husbands in a belonging way, in the way that the church belongs to Christ. But again, remember, Paul is trying to draw upon the image of marriage and to, and to use that as a metaphor to talk about how all Christians are to give themselves to Christ. And he's taking it for granted that they will understand this, that the wife belongs to the husband and the husband is the, is the head of the wife in a way that is not, um, does not involve you know, torture, abuse, or you know, any of these kinds of inequalities that don't belong in, in Christian behavior. To reserve part of oneself from Christ would be seen as weak, perhaps half-hearted as a disciple, would it not? Christ does not give part of himself to the church or to the disciple, and the disciple is called to give all of their self to Christ. 
So Paul is taking an image right from his culture that the wife belongs to the husband and the husband to the wife. And he's saying, you give your whole self, body and soul, to, to your husband. And he's saying to all Christians, you need to do the same when it comes to Christ. Now, Paul says in everything. What does that mean? Well, I'm going to quote Williamson here, middle of page 24. These words need to be understood as a statement of principle rather than as a norm that allows no exception. So Paul is not being legalistic. He's being, well, he's more than being idealist, idealistic, but if you want to put it that way, right? For instance, Paul would not say that a wife should cooperate with her husband in what he knows to be sin. Obviously, he wouldn't agree to that, right? Nor should he be interpreted as enjoining acquiescence to abuse, okay? And the church has made some statements about that um, if you're interested in, in those as well. I don't know if I have them in the footnotes, but you can find them on the USCCB on their marriage site. Um, Paul is developing a beautiful paradigm, though, of marriage based upon our relationship to Christ, which is freeing, life-giving, and rooted in unconditional self-giving love. Paul is pointing to the ideal responsiveness of the church to her head, which is Christ. When she is true to her identity, the loving surrender of a bride to a bridegroom is easy. Right? How hard is it to submit to Christ? Well, it is hard, right? But it's also beautiful. Christ does never abuse us, right? He always accepts us. In the same way, the husband is to accept his bride who's giving her whole self to, her, to him. Now, there's more. Because he doesn't stop at the, at the bride. He wants to talk also about the husband. Right? He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. I like the image of, um, you know, like if you've seen a, a man and a woman ballroom dancing, right? And the guy's like in his tuxedo and the woman's in a beautiful gown. And the guy's doing everything right. You don't really notice him. And that's, that's kind of, in a sense, the kind of, sacrificial giving that, that he's being called to man. I'm not talking about how the man is, is of lesser importance. I'm simply saying that in sanctifying, there's a sense of making beautiful, right? So we're not talking about a kind of coercion or a powering over. We're talking about loving through humility, through generosity, through kindness in the way that Christ loves the church. When Paul says, husbands love your wives in that way, he means it. He means giving up your whole life for her. That's the model for the Christian family according to St. Paul. Now, I know that there's some today who are going to find that simply outdated and say, well, that's, I don't care what you say, it's just making the two unequal, right? Uh, without getting too far into the debate of the sexes and all that, I think one of, the, one of the problems that, one of the things that we need to recover is what I would call biblical manhood and biblical womanhood according to what the Bible actually says. And when you actually look at it, it's a beautiful gem. It's a gem and it's a mystery and it's freeing and life-giving. Unfortunately, it's been, as I said, marred and ripped out of context, and so people get sort of all turned around on this. Now, let's get to the, the really powerful part of it here. At the very end of the, of the section that I read, Paul finally stops talking about the man and the woman, and he says in verse 32, this is a great mystery, or in my translation, this mystery is profound. What, what mystery, Paul? Well, what was the image that he just left us with just before verse 32? Look at verse 30, 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, the so-called one flesh union. Paul is talking about 
the natural gift of marriage back in the garden. He's going back to Genesis. And he's saying that image of the man and the woman and their relational, filial, uh, relational conjugal union of love is a great mystery. It's a sign. It's a sacramental sign of God's own love, who gives his whole self to the church. And one of the most profound images all the way through the Bible is of God being the bridegroom. You see it all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, 1 and 2. It moves through the prophets, through the Psalms and wisdom literature, into the New Testament. Turn with me to John chapter 3. It's in the Song of Songs. John chapter 3, verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands near him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And this is where he says, he must increase, I must decrease. Okay? So in the, in the bridal metaphor, John's the best man. He's the friend of the bridegroom. He's not the bridegroom himself. He keeps saying that in so many ways. Who is the bridegroom? The bridegroom is Jesus Christ. Now, some of you bought my, my CD set on John. One of the things I do in that series is I show how Jesus is the bridegroom all the way through that gospel. I could take you through almost every chapter. Chapter 2, the wedding feast at Cana. Chapter 3, what St. John the Baptist says. Chapter 4, Jesus meets the Samaritan woman. What's that about? Well, briefly, Jesus meets a woman who's a, one of the lost tribes of Israel. Right? He says that she has had five husbands, and she says, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. And in the Samaritan culture, there were five Baals or five gods. Could it be that Jesus is talking about those marriages that she has had spiritually to these other gods and inviting her into his um, bridal chamber, as it were, spiritually speaking, right? Jesus is the new bridegroom. Go to the very end of John's gospel, right? And under the cross is our two disciples, Blessed Virgin Mary and St. John. What does Jesus say to them? Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Didn't take long in the early church before the mystics taught us that there was a spiritual marriage taking place there. Not a physical one, but a spiritual one. So that the new, so that Jesus Christ is the new Adam, and spiritually speaking, Mary is the new Eve. Not physically, but spiritually. Right? And the offspring of the union between um, the deity and humanity, between heaven and earth, right, is the disciple, the beloved disciple, not just John, but all of us. So what Paul is basically trying to teach us here is that there's a great mystery that points beyond marriage to the life, of, uh, the life of God himself into which we're invited. And that means that in our marriages and in our lives, we're called to reflect this communion of love that God is in all sorts of ways. Look what the Catechism says, bottom of 25. It is in the church that Christ fulfills and reveals his own mystery as the purpose of God's plan to unite all things in him. St. Paul calls this nuptial union of Christ a great mystery. Spiritual warfare, we finally hit it, chapter 6. Chapter 6 is uh, really the closing part of the letter. Page 26, uh, Peter Williamson says, The letter to the Ephesians is a very polished piece of writing and closes with a powerful conclusion. And that is absolutely the case. All through this letter, Paul has been teasing us with images of the divine, celestial beings, angels, right? Uh, spiritual blessings, heaven and heavenly places, authorities and dominions. Now he's going to come right back to it, but he's going to tell the Ephesians, you are in a war. Let's look at the section, which begins 
in chapter 10, uh, chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and full of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the spirit with prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. And for me also, that my words may be given to me to open in my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Wow, very powerful conclusion to the letter. Let's just talk about a few of these images here because I think sometimes there's a little bit of confusion what Paul's getting at. First of all, Paul is... Uh, drawing upon a very familiar image here, right, from his world. There's, there's war happening around uh, the Ephesians all the time. And so putting on the whole armor of God would have been something that was familiar to them. The term he uses in Greek, panopelia, is the full armor of God, which is to say that although he mentions a few of them, you sort of have to, have to use your imagination and sort of go beyond, as it were, what Paul says to think about the person who's fully suited for battle. Verse 14, gird your loins with truth. Listen to what St. Thomas Aquinas says about this. Very interesting. Gird your loins with truth. Aquinas says, in spiritual warfare, it is first necessary to check earthly desires. Just as the nearest enemy must be conquered first, such girding is done through temperance, which is opposed to gluttony and sensuality and pretense. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, justice or righteousness is referred to, Aquinas says, as a breastplate because it covers all the virtues, just as a breastplate covers the members of the body. So the first comment that, Paul, uh, that Aquinas talks about that I want to really hone in on here when he talks about girding your loins with truth, right? Because in a sense, nearly all of these weapons that Paul is talking about are defensive. He's not talking about you know, crusaders here. He's talking about a defensive posture, a strong posture, a ready posture, but one that's on the defensive for the most part, right? And what Thomas Aquinas wants to say is one of the ways that we need to gird ourselves is with truth itself. Think of Jesus in the mystery of the desert, right? When he's confronted by the devil. How does he answer? He answers with the word of God. Three times, three temptations. Each time Jesus answers with more and more scripture, right? The devil himself knows the scripture, right? But Jesus is able to use it rightly because he's from the Father. But we too have access to this great treasury of the word of God. Are we reading it regularly? Are we praying it? Are we talking about it together? I know we're sitting here, we're learning about it, but are we talking about it? Are you blessing one another with scripture? Having shod your feet with equipment of the gospel of peace. Now, Williamson talks about how in... Um, the Roman world, Roman military, Roman soldiers wore sometimes a half boot. Um, not so much to shield their feet, feet from blows, but to make sure that they were ready for traveling great distances. 
And I wonder if what Paul's getting at here is this kind of evangelistic fervor that he wants the Ephesians to have. Yes, he wants them to begin in sort of a defensive way, but like Jesus says, go to his disciples, to the 12 and to the 70, I think Paul is sending them out too. He wants them to go out into their culture. Listen to what Isaiah says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of one bringing good news. Okay, and then verse 16, besides all these taking up the shield of faith with which you can quench all the flaming darts of the evil one. Aquinas says, they are fiery since evil desires burn. Fire hath fallen on them and they shall not see the sun. He quotes Psalm 57 to make his point. These are extinguished through faith. Faith quenches present and temporal, it means passing temptations, with the eternal spirit, spiritual blessings produced and promised in Holy Scripture. Finally, verse 17, take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So one more time, Thomas Aquinas, he says, the third weapon is one for attack. The third one is one for, it is not simply enough to defend oneself. It is also necessary to assault the enemy. Physically, this is done with a material sword, he says. It is also done spiritually through the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. There he's quoting St. Paul in 2 Timothy. Piercing and dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Not only the hearts of others, but also our own hearts. Right? One of the reasons we need the word of God is because we live in a culture that says, just do what feels good, right? And oftentimes we're, we're, we move so quickly on impulse, and the word of God brings us back into that great measuring rod that gives us pause. Pray at all times in the spirit, Paul says, not just once a week, once a day, but whenever we can. This is essentially the same message that Paul says in Thessalonians when he says, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Finally, in verse 19, that utterance may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. So Paul asked them to pray for him, just as St. Pope Francis asked the church when he became pope to pray for them, he very humbly closes his letter by saying, please pray for me that I would be bold. Here's what St. Jerome says about that. This is to be understood as if Paul said, let the treasuries be opened. Let the promises hidden from ages be revealed. Let the spirit enter to bring forth those things that have been concealed. And one more quote from Peter Williamson on this business of declaring it boldly. He says, first, Paul depends upon God inspiring him with the appropriate words on each occasion when he speaks. He says, second, he depends on God to strengthen him with boldness when he evangelizes. I love this next sentence. Evangelization is never merely a human act. It always depends on God's involvement for the right words and spiritual courage to be effective. Prayer makes all this possible. Prayer is not simply to make us feel better, but rather to bring about God's intervention in history. God waits upon the prayers of his people. So there it is. A great section on spiritual warfare. Read it, know it, live it, right? Finally, his greetings at the end of the letter. So that you may know what I am, uh, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Uh, you may have to remind yourself that Paul is in chains, literally, not just metaphorically, but literally. 
So he's writing this letter and then commending it to this Tychicus so that this trusted friend and messenger will be able to deposit the letter to the Ephesians. Likely what happened is that he sent a report on how Paul was doing and was also instructed to get basically the lowdown, the skinny and how the church is doing and bring that report and all the good news back to Paul when he returned at some point in the future to Paul. Finally, Paul prays uh, this closing to the Ephesians, and I want to use it as our own closing tonight as well. Peace be to the brothers and sisters, love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Amen. Thank you so much. You mentioned the later Gospels. You can read them, yeah. believe them, but go to the originals first. Yes. I guess my question is, how did the original Gospels get written? Most people didn't have the education and knowledge to be able to write. Yeah. Okay, so the question, if you, to repeat it, is how, you know, how did the Gospels get written? Um, it's very fascinating. I mean, I, it is true that there was a lot of um, illiteracy in the world uh, of Jesus, but there was not as much illiteracy as is sometimes reported. That's the first thing that needs to be said. Um, the other thing I would say is that when you read the Gospels, you know, they don't read like philosophical tracts. So, for example, the Gospel of, of John is, it's very poetic, but compared with, say, Plato, it's very simple Greek. So while we tend to think that the Gospels are very intricate, and they are, um, the, the Greek, for the most part, is, is really down to earth. It's often called Koine Greek. Uh, or common Greek because it was the language of the language of the street, language that people spoke. Um, as you know, the Gospels were first proclaimed orally before they were um, before they were written down. In fact, there's an early church fragment that talks about. You want to know how John wrote his Gospel? There's an early fragment called the Muratorian fragment that is from about 250 um, A.D. We're not sure if this is bona fide, but I, I think it's really interesting, nevertheless. The document says that St. John, wrote, of course, wrote the gospel, but it says before he wrote it, he was content to proclaim it orally until he was going to do some traveling. And before he left, the, um, uh, the congregation of his church beckoned him that he write down his sayings. But he didn't just go write it down. He, it says he gathered Andrew and several other disciples and said, let us pray in the spirit for three days and whatever, excuse me, the spirit tells us, that will be our gospel. And so on the first night, according to this document, the Muratorian fragment, Andrew had a vision. And the vision was not about what they should write. It was that it should be John's gospel. So it says he approached John and said, John, the vision, the revelation I had is that this is not to be my gospel or anyone else's, but yours. So I kind of find that interesting. And then also what's fascinating about that connection with Andrew is, as you know, Andrew is Peter's brother, but he really has a very backseat role in most of the gospels. He's really not doing very much, except in John's gospel. Uh, in John's gospel, he's the one who brings Peter to Jesus. He's also the one who brings the Greeks in chapter 12 to Jesus. So you could say that Peter brings both the Jews and the Greeks. In fact, in, in the Orthodox Church, um, Andrew is called protokletos, which means first called. He's the first summoned disciple. But we're getting a, a little bit off the track. I, I think the main thing to see is that the gospels were, in fact, composed by the apostles all the early church documents that we have unanimously support that the Gospels were composed by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You can look at Eusebius, the church historian. You, you can look at Irenaeus. They have long lists and discussions. 
um, about when the Gospels were written. Um, today, a lot of people say that Mark was the first written Gospel, but if you actually go back and look at the Church Fathers, uh, they, they specifically cite Matthew as the first written Gospel. It says Matthew was written in Hebrew, and then the others followed after him. So we can debate that point. What's not debatable is that the Gospels go back to the individual named eyewitnesses. And I want to make one last point if I can. This is kind of important. I didn't get to say it earlier. I've heard a lot of people say that the Gospels were originally uh, anonymous, that is to say unsigned, and then only later people added the inscriptions, in other words, according to Matthew. And so have you heard this? In other words, so that, that would make the case that the Gospels were written unanimously by, we don't know who wrote it, and only later did people say, well, it was written by um, Matthew or written by John. Now, here's the, the, the skinny in that. That's just a lie. The Gospels are, abs no, it's true. It's absolutely false that the Gospel inscriptions are not in the early, earliest manuscripts. Um, there's a guy who's out there whose name is Bart Ehrman who makes this point a lot. And he says the Gospels were anonymous and only later they added the names to them. Well, he's making a case from silence because we don't have, as you probably know, we don't have the autographs of the original Gospels. That is to say the actual Gospels written in, in by hand by Matthew or by John and so on. What we have are copies. But if you bought my book, you can see in there, I talk about how many copies we have. Over 5,000 manuscript copies of the New Testament, far beyond any other ancient document where we have a couple of dozen. 5,000 and growing copies of the Gospels from the 2nd, 3rd, 4th century onward. So we have our copies. But if you go to any copy of the Gospel of, say, Mark, any copy, every copy, where would you find, uh, if it said, according to Mark, where would you find that? On what page or what part of the scroll? The beginning, right? Okay, every scroll that we have of Mark and of John and of Luke and of Matthew, that we have the entire thing, the beginning, every single one of them that we have has the inscription. So if it's the case that they were originally anonymous and people added them in later, what we would tend to find is some that had them, some that didn't, you know, and then they eventually all had them. It's not the case. Every single one that we have has them. And further, they have them according to a the identical formulary. Kata uh, Markon in Greek, according to Mark, according to Matthew, according to John. It's not John's gospel. I say it is, but it's not, it's not John's gospel. Technically, it's the gospel according to St. John. It's the gospel according to St. Matthew. And that formulation is consistent in all four gospels across all the manuscript history. Why do you think they wrote them in such a way to say the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to John? Because it's really the gospel of God. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're the one who are bringing the message, right? So it's not to diminish the role. It's actually to say that the role is vital, but it is also to say that they played a human role. It was the Holy Spirit who was overseeing this whole project. It's a much longer answer than I wanted to give, but this is one of those topics that just fuels me up because there's so much misinformation about it. So thank you. Son of Tychicus, if I could refer to you that way. Okay. In uh, Ephesians 6, uh, verse 33, in any case, each one of you should love his wife as himself, and the wife should respect her husband. It seems to me love is a far greater burden than mere respect. How would you account for that? I, well, I mean, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't drive a wedge between them. Um, I mean, I think it's, to me it's very clear that like our Lord himself, Paul's mandate for them, and he says this in several, several occasions, is for them to love one another and be unified um, in love. Um, I, don't, I, I don't know how I would answer it. It's a, it's, you, you caught me off guard. I don't know, but I, I certainly wouldn't drive a wedge between them. I, I think that they, work, they have to work together in an, in an integrated way. Elsewhere, Paul says something very interesting about men and women. 
he says actually in one of his other letters that women's heads should be covered, right? You probably heard about this debate and some people wear head coverings. Um, but he says men should not cover their heads for men are the glory of God and women are the glory of men. Now on the surface what it sounds like is there goes Paul again saying, you know, Adam was first and so the men are first and so they're the glory of God but the women is the glory of her husband. What I would argue when you actually see that passage through and it's, if I'm remembering correctly, in uh, 2 Corinthians, well, what I would say about that is Paul understands the complementary nature of man and woman. When I teach Genesis, the way I explain the difference between the man and the woman is that the man is the one who reflects God's transcendence. God is the one who walks in the garden. God is the one who um, has creates the world, and he asks Adam to co-create the world with him as his steward. So Adam is a co-creator. So Adam has this quality of reflecting God's transcendence, which means his bigness, right, his farness, as it were. Um, Eve, on the other hand, represents just the opposite. She represents his imminence, his nearness, community, connection, and so on. And I think the reason that Paul is saying that a man's head should not be covered and a woman's uh, head should be covered is not that the one is inferior to the other, but each has a complementary role. Each one of them images God, but in different ways. So the woman is the fully the image of God, but in a way that's particular to her. The man is fully the image of God, but in a way that's particular to him. And the more that we understand this mystery and how um, these fundamental roles of the two genders support one another, the closer we'll, uh, we'll be to what, uh, what Scripture wants us to say. So anyways, thank you for that. I would assume that 2,000 years ago, bar mitzvahs meant average Jew needed to be able to read and potentially write mm -hmm. at least some things. Mm -hmm. So I would assume that also means they were educated. They were, and particularly the, I mean, to be honest, particularly the boys. Um, I actually did get a chance to see a bar mitzvah when I was in Jerusalem uh, just this last January, and they bring them down to the Western Wall. It's a very beautiful ceremony. Um, but as far as that, um, yes, as you know, Jesus was presented in the, in, in the temple. I mean, he was found in the temple at age 12, which is interesting because the, the, technically the age is 13. So it may have been, some suggest, possibly his 13th birthday. That's, in, that's a lot of inference we don't know. But in any case, he's right at that, that precipice of from boyhood to manhood. We've gone so far away from that in our culture now, we've got, you know, 25 and 35-year-old boys, you know, who are kind of still growing up in a mommy's basement. But, but I digress. Um, I like that culture, that, that sense that, that there was a sense of, uh, of responsibility at, at a fairly young age. But um, no, it's true. Now, as far as the, 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 this question about the scripture and writing, which I think you're getting at, it's interesting because um, do you know that a boy, by the time he reached this bar mitzvah, would have had the Torah memorized? I'm going to say that again, would have had the Torah memorized. Now, I'm holding up my Bible here. Here's Genesis, right, first page. And here is where Deuteronomy more or less ends. So he memorized this much, okay? And a whole inch, and this is in very fine print. We're talking about a tremendous amount of Scripture, but the fact is they were hearing it sung and prayed all day and all night in their home. The great Jewish prayer was called the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it goes on to say, parents, teach this to your children day and night, night and day. And they did. And so by the time the boy was 13 years old, he would have had the scripture memorized. Now, would he have been able to write it down is another whole question. I would, I would be of the mind that um, in the ancient world, yes, there is a sense of illiteracy when you compare it to modern times. Okay? However, we have illiteracy problems today as well. 
But what I would, what I would say is that in, in the faithful Jewish circles, there was, a, um, there was a rigor about learning because it was the word of God. So while a lot of it was done orally and it was an oral culture, um, we see that those who were trained in scribes uh, were, were, were trained to, um, to, to really uh, look at the, the, the writing of scripture almost as a science. I mean, it was very, very technical, it was very, very precise. And so I'm just not of that mind in that equation that says people were all illiterate in the, in the days of Jesus. I mean, there was higher illiteracy rates, but no, no doubt about it, people would have had writing skills, certainly by the time that they, they may have been rudimentary. And there may have been variants that some boys would have had lesser, um, and some boys would have gone on to further studies because of their fathers were rabbis and so on. But certainly those who were rabbis and teachers would have had the skills to be able to, to basically write. Uh, thank you. Uh, back to husbands and wives. You yeah. mentioned the congregation was mixed Jewish, Gentile, yeah. and I wonder if you could give us some context of the first century ordinary understanding of marriage in either Jewish or Greek or Roman uh, ordinary life, and was there a conflict there that he may have been trying to resolve? With certainly, there's different. Th th certainly, there's different religious beliefs, right? But w one thing that I think is in is in common, we could say, just to kind of start with the family picture is it's very different than the nuclear family to start with, right? Just kind of taking the big picture, we would say that, that family for, in the ancient world, both in Jew and Gentile, was something that was a much larger and more pliable understanding than we tend to think of today as we go to our home and we have you know, our nuclear families and so on and so forth. That was just kind of unheard of. Uh, when I went to Bethlehem, I was talking with a shepherd who talked about how, you know, like when Mary and Joseph go uh, to Bethlehem to register, and it says there was no room in the inn, he was explaining to me that, um, I'm trying to remember now the word in, in Hebrew for inn, but basically what he was talking about was he, he believes very likely that the inn referred to the upper house. A lot of families had an upper house and a lower house, and the upper house was actually where the family members lived, mother and father, you know, but also children, grandparents and other, other kin, and then down below lived the animals the lower house and the sometimes the word used to describe the upper house and I don't have the Hebrew word at my disposal was basically an inn so he suggests that when it says there was no room in the inn it was no room in the upper house therefore she went down to live in in the manger in the feeding trough where Jesus was, was born right and what's interesting about that is you get this picture of this this larger family that lived in these in these dwellings, even the most simple people, even the, even the shepherds, had this larger sense of family. When Jesus says, my mother, my mother, my brothers, and my sisters, he's not talking about, you know, bloodlines of his, his actual siblings. He's talking about kin. People didn't, just didn't think of their families in the ways that we do in a very kind of static way. And that was shared certainly by, um, by, by Jews and by Gentiles. One big difference I want to mention in terms of uh, family values was, uh, well, abortion. Um, one of the reasons that Jews would not enter into Gentile or pagan homes was because of the high levels of infanticide and also abortion. Um, and to, this, to the Jew, this was just an abomination because it defiled the, the person who had dignity. But another, another thing you see in, um, in Scripture, especially in the book of Sirach and Proverbs, is the, the great value and love of, of the older person. Now, there are texts you can find in in Greco-Roman culture that talk about the, the older and wise. But in a particular way, you could say that these values of honoring the young, honoring the old, honoring the married couple, one husband and one wife, were, were really come from our Jewish heritage. And sometimes when people say that, well, you know, we're changing, you know, Catholic 
ideals and values when it comes to marriage and redefining marriage. You have to understand these values go all the way back into the Old Testament and are very, very ancient. And so sometimes we need to, I think, really remind ourselves that this heritage we have is not just a Catholic and Christian heritage, but a Judeo-Christian one that we need to protect. Okay? Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.